in just a few moments, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, and the Gospel of John, chapter 11. So if you'd like to get a head start and find that, you can do that. As uh, we were hearing in our interview a moment ago, uh, life is full. There's a lot of stuff going on. Many things demand our attention. Some of you are spending a lot of time and attention on your past. Whether you're in counseling or you're just working through some process on your own, you're trying to figure out some stuff that happened in your family of origin and uh, childhood experiences and issues that formed and impact you today. Some of you are all about your future, crafting and revising that mission statement, uh, arriving at those goals and those objectives and those strategic plans and working those plans, etc. Some of you are so consumed with today's task. How am I going to get what needs to happen this week taken care of? I've got to go to parent-teacher meetings and sporting events, and I've got uh, uh, deadlines at work. And, oh, yeah, uh, I'm training for this event, or I've uh, got to make sure I'm getting my exercise in. Or I've got some social engagements that are beginning to call my name, and I've got to get ready for it. Meanwhile, the news is filled with uh, predators upon children. And murder and crimes and violent acts, preventable diseases that are ravaging people by the millions. And what am I supposed to make of the opportunities I have with my life? What's success look like? How do I get there? I've got some setbacks and failures along the way. What am I going to do with those? Is it okay to not be great and just have your basic life? There's a lot of things that demand our attention. And what I'm suggesting to you today is that there is only one thing, though, that's necessary. In all of life's complexities, life really is simpler than we think. And I'm not saying all this other stuff is unimportant and it never has to be dealt with. I'm saying there's really only one thing, though, that is necessary, that has to get your attention, has to be addressed. And to get at that today, we're going to have a case study. And uh, it's uh, about a, a couple of familiar characters to a lot of you, a, a group of sisters called Martha and Mary. Uh, these were very dear friends of Jesus. In fact, they were like family to Jesus, along with their brother Lazarus. Uh, Jesus spent a good bit of time in their home. It was almost like a second home to him. And we're going to look in on a case today of one of those times when he was visiting in their home and having a meal with them and what took place. So if you have that open to Luke chapter 10, you're going to want to read along with us as we see what's taking place in the home of Martha and Mary. So Luke 10, 38, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. 
And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So many episodes out of the life of Jesus that I would have loved to have been there. And this is one of those occasions just to to be in the room in the house and uh, to see these sisters go about how they normally go about their lives. And to hear Jesus respond to Martha by name. It's a precious moment. Even though it's kind of a gentle rebuke in there, uh, it's very intimate, very relational. And we take note that he says there's one thing that is necessary. And God, and uh, Mary has chosen that one thing that is necessary. Now, what is that one thing? Is Jesus making a case against busyness? Is this some kind of case against service, engagement, giving up your life? Absolutely not. This is not a case against service. It's a case for experiencing Jesus, for experiencing God. And we're going to see in just a moment another episode in their home with the sisters pretty much doing the same thing they were doing today, although it's radically different. And the difference is that Martha, on this occasion, was going about her service in ways that she was not experiencing Jesus. And on another occasion, she'll be going about service all over again in a way that does experience Jesus. And Mary went about her experience of Jesus different than the way Martha went about it. So this is not a case of Jesus saying, Martha, be more like Mary. He's not making a case for her not to be herself. Rather, he's making the case that by all means, however you are, who you are, what you are about, make it all around me, all about me. Experience me. Here's the good news, friends. God loves you so much. He has given you a gift. And the Bible says the gift is such a treasure. It's like a guy who found the most precious pearl in the world and he sells everything he has so that he can have that pearl of great price, of great value, of great worth. And, of course, that is God himself. We're told in John 3.16, God loved you so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, a lot of people have taken that phrase eternal life and they've made it absolutely synonymous with going to heaven when you die. And although that's included in what eternal life means, that is a small part of what eternal life means. 
Jesus clarified and expounded about eternal life in John chapter 17, verse 3, when he said, this is eternal life. That you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And that word know, K-N-O-W, is not a head thing. It's not just intellectually accepting a few premises and doctrinal thoughts and so on like that. It involves that. But way more than that, it means to engage, to experience, to have a relational connect. So he says, here's the gift. I am giving you myself. I'm disclosing. I'm revealing. I'm allowing you to know me to engage me, to have a relationship with me today, tomorrow, next week, and forever. And so here is the one thing that's necessary. Know and experience me. Now, when we know and experience him, what does that mean? If you listen to any religious Programming, television, radio, whatever, and I don't recommend it. But if you listen to any of that stuff, then you'll hear that knowing God, experiencing God, engaging God is all about God prospering you, God blessing you, God fixing you and all of your problems and all of your uh, challenging circumstances. And God can and God does a lot of that, but that's not what it's all about. As we see in the next episode in the lives of Martha and Mary. If you'll turn with me over to John chapter 11. Of course, this is the the occasion when Jesus is away from Bethany, where Martha, Mary, and Lazarus live. And a messenger is sent to Jesus to say, Lazarus is sick. And he's almost uh, about to die. And Martha and Mary are asking, would you come? And notice what happens, verses 5 and following in chapter 11. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Now, a little cryptic stuff in there, so let me just take a moment to to unpack that. And we're not going to spend a lot of time here. But here's the point. Jesus says, there's a purpose and a plan to Lazarus' sickness, to Lazarus' death. And while it is day, in other words, while God is at work, nothing is going to mess with what God is at work about. And so his purpose is going to be accomplished. His plans will be fulfilled. So let's go now. So even though people are trying to kill me, nobody can kill me. Nobody can do anything to me until the things God has planned for me to do have been done. 
That's a point of security for all of us, because that's true for all of us in the sovereignty of God. But notice this. God is going to allow Lazarus to die. It's God's purpose for Lazarus to die. And when Jesus, two days later, shows up on the scene, immediately everyone questions his love for this family. Martha comes up to him and says, oh, if you'd only been here, he wouldn't have died. Mary comes up to him, oh, if you'd only been here, he wouldn't have died. All of the mourning friends, the grieving friends, said, is this not the one who can do miracles? If he had come, could he have not prevented Lazarus' death? All of these are are questions about whether Jesus really loved these people or not. Why? Because he didn't respond to them the way they all wanted him to respond to them in the time that they wanted him to respond to them. And so here's the thing to understand, friends. When you engage God, experience God, know Jesus, do life with him, that doesn't mean that he insulates you from all of the hardships of this fallen, broken world. Rather... That means that no matter how bad, how hard, how painful stuff can be, He still loves you and God's purposes are still being accomplished. Are you with me? Okay. So, Jesus loved Martha. Jesus loved Mary. Jesus loved Lazarus. And He stayed two days longer. What's going on with you? How hard is it? What questions are swirling and buzzing around your head? He loves you. And he may wait a couple more days to respond in ways that you're hoping. Or he may never respond in ways that you're hoping. But he still loves you. And it's still all fitting into God's sovereign purposes and plans. Well, as you know. Jesus does show up. He does do this miraculous calling forth of Lazarus back from the grave. And notice, he does not call Lazarus back from the grave because he loves Martha and Mary. He calls Lazarus back from the grave because it fits the purpose and plan of God. It's a foreshadowing. Do I need to change mics, Jerry? Let me know. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus' own resurrection. And so even though uh, Martha and Mary greatly benefit from Lazarus' resurrection, it's not primarily about them. It's primarily about God. Well, last episode, last scenario that we'll take a look at, John chapter 12, picking up in verse 1. So sometime after Lazarus is raised from the dead, Jesus is in their home again. And in chapter 12, are you about to do something with me? You are doing something with me. So look with me in chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. So six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Pretty familiar looking picture here. Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary's at his feet. 
But she therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray Jesus, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Again, there's so much in there, we don't have time to unpack it all. But here's the piece that we will talk about. When you are experiencing God and when you are engaging God, whether you are serving Him and others and thereby experiencing Him, or whether you're having a lingering time at His feet and beginning to pour out your heart and all the precious things that are part of your heart, your expressions toward God, your experience of God may not be appreciated by other people may not be valued by other people, may not be affirmed by other people, in fact, may be criticized by other people. Judah says, what in the world are you doing wasting that perfume? That perfume is so expensive, you could have sold it, and it would have brought in 300 denarii that you could have done something for the poor. Now, A denarius, one denarius is equal to one day's wage. So he basically just said this thing was so expensive, it was like 300 days wages. Now let's just say somebody was making $10 an hour here for an eight-hour work day. You multiply that times 300. In today's currency, that would be $24,000. That's a pretty expensive bottle of perfume. How many of you have perfume that, no, no, okay, don't own up to it if you do. And she's cracking that thing open and she's lavishing it upon Jesus as an act of adoration. Listen, God is lavish with us and sometimes as we're engaging him, we respond to him in lavish ways even though there's so much need around us. And then there are other times we respond to Him in rather simple, maybe even deprived kinds of ways because there is so much need around us and we want to share it with other people. The point is, is that as you're engaging Him, as you're doing life with Him, you have this kind of spirit directing on how resources are used with which to engage Christ. To know him, to love him. Now, I want to quickly go through a little something with you that will, I think, help you to understand the difference in what I'm talking about today with what is typical in most church experiences and most religious experiences. Uh, what this amounts to, and Sky Jathani is the one who's helped me to understand this, is that we have various postures by which we uh, look toward God. And the first set of postures that I would highlight for us are what we would call religious 
postures. Uh, the first one being life under God. Now, life under God is a posture toward God that uh, so emphasizes matters of obedience, so emphasizes matters of keeping the rules, of towing the line, that it has been skewed to the point that uh, we are trying to mitigate uh, the things that are around us and make us afraid and, and make life insecure, we're trying to mitigate all that by securing the favor of God. And if I just obey, if I'm a good boy, if I uh, cross all the T's, dot all the I's, do all the rules, then life should be okay. Life under God. And then there is another posture called life over God. And this is a posture that says, hey, I just need to base my life upon biblical principles. I can have a successful marriage if I just carry out the principles in the Bible. I can have a successful business and financial career if I just uh, make use of the principles in the Bible. I can uh, successfully navigate all my relationships if I just engage the principles of the Bible. In fact, engaging the principles, I almost don't even need God. It's just, you know, you just do the principles. And we have people all over the place that are just following the principles and thereby controlling God. I, I, I I, I control my circumstances, and it's a life over God. And then there's others that do life from God. It's a consumer Christianity. It's like he's the divine vending machine. And I just have to ask this, and he'll do it. I have to ask for that, and he'll do it. And I ask for the other, and he'll do it. And then there is life for God. Where I'm going to care for the poor. I'm going to make sure there are enough water wells in the countries that don't have fresh water. I'm going to do everything I can to eradicate diseases. And I'm going to feed the hungry and help clothe the, the naked and so on it goes. And, and friends, the, the problem with all of these is that they are postures toward God. They are religious in nature because they start with us in some kind of way to reach to Him and, and hopefully control our circumstances in ways that make life feel more secure. And they don't work. And it happens all the time. So instead, I'm advocating for not a religious posture but a relational posture. And that is, namely, life with God. And see, uh, if we're not careful, we'll be spending a lot of time trying to get people who are living over God to live under God. People who are taking from God to actually do for God. And we try to get all those transactions happening all the time. And really, that's not it either. It's about life with God. And when I am doing it with Him, and my life is centered in Him, and everything else revolves around that, my work, my family, my obligations, my responsibilities and tasks, when everything else is revolving around Jesus at the center of it all, and I'm doing it with Him, then it all matters. It all counts. It all is a means by which we engage God. 
Now, we've got some people next door right now in our nursery. And if they are changing diapers and feeding babies as unto the Lord, as a way to experience the Lord, they're doing life with God and with your babies right now. Behind us in the next room, if those leaders of our children in Promised Land are doing all of that as an experience of God and doing it with God, it all counts. You go to work tomorrow, get into that cubicle or sit in that boardroom or uh, get out and mingle with your clients and customers or whatever you do. And you're doing that with God. It all counts. And it all transforms you. And it all shapes your life. And it's in those reasons that it makes sense that I would sacrifice. That I would pour my life out. That I, everything I consider of great worth and value, I would lay at His feet. That I would take holy risk for His sake. All of that makes sense. Because nothing can separate me from His love. I'm with Him. I'm enveloped by Him. So that Paul said in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, not famine, not nakedness, not danger, not sore, and the list goes on. And it all makes sense to live that kind of way when you're doing it with him. And so let me remind us the one thing that is necessary is to know God, to experience Him, to engage Him, to be and do life with Him. That's what's necessary. Everything else comes along and falls into place after that. Yeah, there's a lot of important things to engage in. But before we're ever called to something, we're called to someone. So, what will you do with that? Will you trust in Jesus? Will you bet your life on Him? Ask Him to forgive you and save you from sin and to cause you to be alive unto Him and to have a relationship with Him? Would you so identify with Him that you'd let everybody know, hey, I'm a Jesus person. Publicly be baptized. Would you commune with Him? Lingering with Him, listening to Him, following Him in all the to-do things. Let me pray for you. So, Lord, we've asked you to clarify some things for us today. We get kind of crazy and confused. We mix things up. It gets complex. We need your help. 
for it to be simplified to one thing. And so I, I pray for my friends today that want to know you, that want to be with you and do life in you, that by your grace and by your spirit, you would empower such things to take place. Father, stir confidence and hope in us that you're good. And no matter our circumstances, your sovereignty is working out high holy plans that we want to see come to pass for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.